when you confront death at age 22, everything changes. It got me thinking about what I wanted to do before I actually die, because life is unpredictable. Can you relate? I'm Kiki Kelly, and this is my story. My friend Amy Hallberg thought I should share some of my stories with you. She'll be joining me here. Some are hard, some are funny, and some are just unbelievable. But they're all true. So here we are. Season 1, Episode 2. Tales from an Inadvertent Bucket List Champ. And we're back. (laughs) So we ended last time... When you said your colon burst, literally you said it just burst. Is that what happened? It felt like it. Um, What really happened was it finally stopped me. So it was the culmination, the really horrible culmination of two years of profound suffering in college. And when you and I were talking about this, I mentioned that you had had basically a miserable final two years and you pushed back against that hard. (laughs) Yeah, I I look back on my college years as wonderful. The good thing about having a very all-encompassing illness is that it puts you in the now. <laughs> like way before I'd heard of Eckhart Tolle and being in the now, uh, it just it forces you to. You either you either suffer profoundly in the moment of you know pain, but it, I mean it's such a survival. <sighs> so basically, when you feel good. You're going to do the things. Oh my gosh, yes. So yeah, I didn't want to focus on the bad. There was already enough bad. So when I felt decent or, you know, I have also have a high tolerance for pain, I I went out and lived fully. I did everything a college student wanted to do. So for example, you did not one sport, but three? (laughs) I love sports. I really do. Martial (laughs) arts is your thing though, right? They're not gentle sports. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love, I love I love sports. So I was doing um, five teams of broomball. I was on five teams. Which is kind of a brutal sport. It's it's awesome. It's like hockey <laughs> hockey without the skates. And then um, I played rugby, and I played field hockey. And I also taught swimming lessons sometimes and babysat and all this stuff. But did those... Okay, so, you know, okay, babysitting, but... Like rugby, field hockey, those are those are punishing sports. I mean, and That's you were the sick, benefit. right? That's it's because okay, at Carlton, what is it? Everyone says you work hard, you play hard. Mm-hmm. That's very true. So I was trying so desperately to get a four point because I'd done so poorly that I almost got kicked out of school my first semester. So I was trying to <laughs> freshman dig, year. So I was, yes, trying to dig myself out of that hole. Um, and you know, when I wasn't working hard at at homework. And, and you were in the a, library? Yeah. So, I mean, these are all <laughs> cerebral, right? And that's good because it keeps my very terrier-like mind busy. But then I also needed that extreme exercise to get rid of the stress. Okay. And and I always felt so much better after tackling people and <laughs> like making you know, stopping goals. Was there, a, was there a physical impact, though? I mean, let's be honest. You were really sick. Yeah, of course there was. Um, I was bleeding. And the other was that I bruised a lot, like a lot more than normal. And it became pretty obvious to my teammates, who didn't say anything at the time, but years later told me that they would... um... (laughs) So my roommate and best friend, Brenna, 
said, I'm so sorry, but you know, I just couldn't stand you being hit by the balls because you'd end up with these huge bruises and it would look so painful. So I would, you know, get in front of you and, and, and I was like, yeah, I was wondering why you did that. That was really <laughs> annoying. <laughs> like I have it. I've got to take it care of. And she's like, no, but I didn't want you to get hit by the ball or with a stick. And then, you know, and I'm like, oh, so sweet. <laughs> okay. So you're doing all these things, but I want to know, and, beca- and, and in the middle of this, you are going off to the hospital. You are going to doctor's appointments. You're working. You're doing all the sports. You missed some school still. How did you get that 4.0? I mean, I, I know. I, I know you well enough to know that you do things and you take them seriously. But still, how did you get that 4.0 when you were missing school sometimes? Yeah. So I got very creative and resourceful. Um, learned that from my mom. And um, there goes my dog, which is why the... Sorry about the jingles. <laughs> so I asked professors, I, mean, I pitched them with them, hey, um, so instead of this academic paper on women in Greco-Roman antiquity, um, can I write the diary of a Vestal Virgin? That sh- will still show that I have learned everything, you know, that was that I was supposed to learn in class. You're actually applying it in almost yeah. more of a real-world understanding. Um, it was more of a creative venture, and um, that worked for my professors at Carleton. They they really like students to be creative, but at the same time, it also kept me interested. So it was fun. I mean, I <laughs> sat on the rooftop of one of the buildings, one of the dorms, and wrote the entire play for... Um, oh, wait, get this. This is the best assignment ever. So the first day, your first day in a Shakespeare class, right? And the professor says, you can either take the test at the end, or you can write the missing Shakespeare play based on Don Quixote. And and of course, I'm thinking everyone's going to write that play, right? Yeah. I mean, why? Who wouldn't do that? At the end, it turns out only I did. I was going to say, everybody else wouldn't do that. Only you would do I that, Kiki. That would be the I thought, oh my God, everyone's going to do a play. And we actually performed it. It was amazing. It was called Tomfoolery. I mean, I had so much fun in college. I loved I loved it. And you did, speaking of plays, end up going on that London trip that you talked about. Yes, and I did musical theater at school, and I was in the Chamber Singers. I mean, I had a very active life. And um, I wasn't going to miss out on going to London. No way. So um, one of my doctors set me up with an English doctor named Dr. Saar at the University of London Hospital, you know, with the caveat. So with my limitations, I could still go. That involved me spending many hours waiting because it's National Health Service. I mean, this was still one of the best doctors in the world. But so in that time of waiting, you know, while my other classmates were out and about in London, going to museums and everything, I was reading the oldest novel. uh, Tom Jones? Tom Jones, The History of Tom Jones. Yeah. And I ended up adapting it to a play that I wrote in the bathtub. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's no room with all these kids around, right? Like, no privacy, no quiet. And so... You're sitting in a bathtub in London. Hardly anyone took a bath either. There was one bath on, like, the third floor or whatever. So I, like, trapped... I put myself in there, sat in the bathtub, and wrote this play. So, I mean, yeah, things got done. And even though you missed out on some of the things in London, you did some things that nobody else did. Yeah, I mean, I had this wonderful friend, Brian Legrand, who seemed to understand the illness more than other. He just was like an old soul. Yeah. And he understood that I had trouble minding the gap, which, you know, it sounds ridiculous. Walking out of the subway, <laughs> stepping and over the, the gap and not It's a joke, in. you know, mind the gap. Of right, course, of right, course. Right. 
But no, that was a real possibility because I was on high doses of prednisone, otherwise known as solumedrol. And what it does is it messes with your, at least for me, it messed with my depth perception. So he he just got used to taking me by the, the elbow or whatever and, and guiding me. And so we became good friends. And um, I went to a They Might Be Giants concert <laughs> there in London. I mean, wow. And, yeah. and the coolest was that the friends I'd made in the factory right. were at the University of Loughborough. And they had invited me to their ball in Nottinghamshire. (laughs) So you went to a ball in Nottinghamshire. I was like, I'm sorry, professor. (laughs) So we were on a class trip to Stonehenge and Bath. And and I saw Stonehenge and went to Bath. And and I was like, okay, well, you know, I told you this, but I'm leaving now. Because I've got this (laughs) gown that I have from Carrots and I'm going to a ball. (laughs) you know, so I found my own way on the train, and it was during the days of the IRA bombings, and one of the stations had been bombed right after I left it and stuff. But, you know, it just, everything And seemed- you saved up your money from some of your money we, from here to do that? We had a per diem of nine pounds a day, and a lot of us would um, try to eat as little as possible so that we would have extra money, spending money. So, um, for example, we'd eat pita bread. My roommate, Sarah Jane, and I would eat pita bread and um, apricots, which we could store on our, like, window ledge because we didn't have refrigeration, right? Uh-huh. But then save that money so that we could buy Doc Martens or... Um, <laughs> or go to They Might Be Giants exactly. or the ball in I your know, right? dress. It's all about being resourceful. <laughs> so when it comes time for spring break and we're in, uh, you know, we're on the London program and we have spring break. And so pe- some people are going to Greece and some are going to Edinburgh or whatever. I went to Paris because I had a foreign exchange student from France uh, friend that I'd kept in touch with all these years named Arnaud. And he was at the Sorbonne. So four of my classmates wanted to go along because I think I was the only one that had like a friend in a foreign city. And he was such a great host. We did everything we wanted to do. We took A Sun Also Rises by Hemingway and we went to every place he mentioned and ate everything Hemingway ate and drank everything Hemingway drank. And it was just so much fun. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, this was... Yeah. Amazing. And then we went to Père Lachaise and we put a bottle of red wine over Jim Morrison's grave. I mean, these were like... I, I Père Lachaise was, is a cemetery. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. And it was great. I, I missed going through the Louvre that time because I was... I had a, a bout of... You know, I just kind of sat got- the entryway and, and my... You know, it must have been weird for the students traveling with me because they were like, okay, she cannot even go through the Louvre. And I was like, but it's okay. This is just how it is. I'm going to sit here and you go ahead... You know, I did what I could do, and I did what I and I couldn't do what I couldn't do. Right. You just prioritized. Today, my yeah. health is my priority, and another day, I'm going to go and dump wine over Jim Morrison's grave. Exactly. Right. That's life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's life in a nutshell. Well, okay. And so that's such a great metaphor for what happened after you came back. So, do you want to? Explain what happened. Just prior to leaving for London, I submitted an entry for a national advertising contest. And when I got back, I found out that I, I made it in along with another classmate, Nicole. We were flown out to New York City and feted by the major advertising firms. My entry for the advertising contest was a concept about coloring outside the lines. Um, and it ended up being turned into a Nissan commercial. And I would like to interrupt here and say (laughs) that as we were preparing to do this podcast and we were talking about that, I was like, 
that's the commercial. So it's it's the car is being compared to coloring outside the lines, right? There's this teacher walking down the aisle and she says, stay within the lines. The lines are your friends. And the little girl takes her crayon and just tears it across the page. Yes. And then they show this red car and the car does, it's like the same little girl grown up and she like tears off. Or it could be the teacher. Or it could be the teacher. <laughs> Somebody is in a car in this red car and she just like tears off the road and just goes off-roading, right? Yes, yes. And I actually quoted that ad in my book. Which is crazy because that's a Harry Met Sally moment. <laughs> it's like, you actually quoted me to me? <laughs> totally did. <laughs> you're right, you're right, I know you're right. Anyway, um, yeah, so that was crazy and, and uh, it was amazing to be at Saatchi and Saatchi and see where the Tide commercials are made and stuff, but that was very industrial, right? The really kind of homey, cool place was DDB Needham, and um, I got along right away with everyone, and so they were the ones who actually offered me a job. It was a good fit. So a job at an advertising agency in Manhattan that you love. At the end of my junior year for after my senior year, yes. But they made it very clear, and I knew it. In those days, advertising, it was such a hot job to be Yeah, in. everybody wanted to be yes. in advertising. So people would parachute in and, you know, do these big, you know, volunteer like to work. Like actually parachute. Yeah, and volunteer to work for free and that kind of thing. And uh, I couldn't do that, so... They offered me seventeen thousand dollars and um, a year in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that just wasn't going to happen, and I, you know, it was it was really sad. It was you had student loans to pay off. There was just no way I was ever going to live in New York City for seventeen thousand. And the crazy thing is, when I, I I ended up being offered the exact same amount in rural North Carolina to teach high school, and that was a struggle. So that just shows how far of a stretch it would have been. Yeah, it was it was beyond my ken. Okay, so you didn't take the job. And so what happened after that? Yeah, I just had to put that out of my head. Um, I went and looked for internships. <laughs> Get this, in the Career Center. And there's an internship with the Minnesota Historical Society. And it's based in Moose Lake, Minnesota, which is my hometown. <laughs> so that's what you did between juniors. Okay, over. It's like literally who else? It was written for me. It was crazy. I was like, you're you're kidding me. It said must have own transportation and housing. And I'm like, who else is going to get transportation and housing in Moose Lake, Minnesota? Except for me, who has my entire family there. So Between I, your junior and senior year? Yes. I worked an entire summer for the Minnesota Historical Society. They were developing a, a Fires of 1918 museum. And both sides of my family had been in the Great Fire of 1918. So I spent a magical summer with all my grandparents driving around to the old places based on the plat maps where these people had lived prior. I was mapping before and after the fire, who lived there when, and then who was still alive afterwards, because I was trying to develop a list of the names of the dead. There was a mass grave, and that list of the dead is, is said every year during the you know memorial or the commemoration of the, the Great Fire. And so I was the first person to read that list in, in the October Oh memorial. my gosh. And now they have a museum there based on a lot of my work. Wow. I know! <laughs> okay, this has never been... the coolest summer. We have never been talked... To, you are hearing this for the first time. I forgot about it. I know, oh my <laughs> gosh. So, okay, so you have this incredible internship 
in basically the place you consider home. Right. And my favorite professor, English professor, invited me to be his assistant, his research assistant, because I was taking his Visions of California class. I got an A+. I freaking was obsessed with California. I mean, I'd grown up there until I was five. I mean, I'd... So like all these things that are suited just for you. Yeah. Okay. So we come back to college, senior year, and what happened? So I'm eating brunch in um, Burton Dining Hall, and over walks Topher Kandik, who is a fellow English major who later becomes the teacher of the year for Washington, D.C., which is amazing, right? Right. Gets a class award. Anyway, he comes up to me and says, you know, Teach for America interviews are going on right now, down here, like literally next door. You should do that. Was he doing it? Well, I didn't get the sense that he had, and but so but he's just pointing you in that direction, just yeah, randomly. But that's how things happen. <laughs> like I, I had gotten used to people just sort of coming up, plopping something really important, and 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 realizing that's a good idea. Yeah, I'm going to go over there and see what's going on, and right. and I think it helped to not have any preparation because I wasn't nervous and I just it was a challenge it was it was a fun interview where they're just like trying to trip you up because there's so many different positions they could give you basically teach for america is supplying teachers where there would be permanent substitutes there's no you're one, providing no one a teacher where none exists exactly for kids who need it more than anybody else exactly and so what teach for america wanted to know in the two day intensive interview oh my gosh, process wow two days was that if they throw you into this crazy environment under resourced you know, how are you going to make it work? So I just remember one example where they were like, well, okay, fine. What if we make you into a math teacher for kindergarten? And I was like, okay, then we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to collect oatmeal boxes and we are going to learn how to tap out rhythms. And so through drumming, we're going to learn basic math skills. And those are the kind of things that I was throwing out there. And then two of us made it through the entire process a woman named Nancy and myself. <laughs> so. Okay, can I just go back a moment and say basically what they were asking you to do is what you did with your whole college education, right? Because you were sick, it forced you to get creative, and so your whole college education, those last two years especially, was an exercise in coming up with alternative ways of learning that would be more effective in the absence of time, health, etc. And so you were making up alternative assessments for yourself. And now they're asking you to do that very thing in the interview process. And it's the exact same thing I saw my mother do, having grown up and seeing her juggle work, school, parenting, and being extremely resourceful on very little money. So I had already seen that. It had been modeled for me. And I then I had lived through it. And sure enough, it just, it was perfect. <laughs> Thank you, Topher, because it was. It was like the absolute perfect post-college job for me. I would have chosen the advertising, but it's such a better fit. What I learned was that my own dreams for myself were not nearly as grand as what seemed to be in my destiny. And what the universe had in mind for you. Yeah, what God had in mind. And it was some crazy places and crazy things, but I just learned to go with it. So speaking of going with it, um, after two years of living with this illness... And it, still not being properly uh, diagnosed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, you said you, you, you'd been going to doctors. What did the, you, you, what the Northfield doctor first told you when you went in there? That was a life lesson. Um, I had so looked up to doctors and thought of them as God figures, and it was very quickly that I learned 
the there are limits to a doctor's knowledge and um none of the medicines that were tried on me worked um and they would say things like just the just the kind of I mean, what would you do if you, if you were told, well, it could just be nothing. It's just be an infection or it could be leukemia. <laughs> I mean, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Thankfully, I worked in the library. I did my own research. I mean, I didn't know anyone who had any of these, these, these symptoms. I didn't even know what this disease was. It didn't run in my family. I didn't think at the time about the connection with the factory and the chlorine spill. Um, I just needed to make it work. Right, you were a young woman. Giving myself enemas in college. I mean, yeah, that was great. Somehow I managed to have a nor- like some normal No, I wouldn't call what you just, oh, relationships. But I wouldn't call what you just described normal. I would say it's amazing the things you did. And oh, by the way, also at the same time, you're really sick. So like it's this dichotomy of like amazing sickness and amazing experiences at the same time, both. Yeah, my whole life has been like that. Some really bad things happen and some really amazing things happen. So when the really bad thing, the worst thing, finally happened, you had graduated from college, right? You thought you had, you thought you had gotten past it. You thought that you had gotten away with it, right? That you were, you'd, you'd managed to graduate. Yeah, like Jack and the Beanstalk got away with the, the golden heart, but we thought he got away with it. Yeah, exactly. I get right to the edge of the beanstalk. Right. And the giant comes up and smacks me down. <laughs> and you were felled. Yes. And you will talk about this in the next episode. You spent the next summer living at the Mayo Clinic. We'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. During those dark days, when it was so hard, you had, as you've said many times, a 2% chance of living. Something kept you alive. What was it? Uh, I am a stubborn person (laughs) and patience is not my virtue. And uh, I was able to, I'd always been told patience was something I needed to work on. So I just figured I was being given a life lessons in patience. And then if I were just patient enough, everything would turn out fine. Um, but I was going to teach for America. (laughs) So when I was told that I was not indeed going to make it to teach for America training, um, that's when I flipped out. And between my mom and I, I think we bombarded um, the Teach for America uh, staff. And they finally offered me a, a deferral a year later. And honestly, I, I don't think I would have survived without that to look forward to. Because it did get really, really hard after that. But I had that year to recover. And a year seemed like forever in, in those days. And mm-hmm. why couldn't I? Why couldn't I completely recover and go on to teach Teach for America? And that's exactly what I did, Amy. <laughs> it's what you did. Nobody tells Kiki Kelly she's not going to teach for America. <laughs> it was important. <laughs> this is Amy Hallberg in partnership with Kiki Kelly. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tales from a Bucket List Champ. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast and please share it with friends. We'll be back next time with episode number three, Mayo Miracle. We hope you'll join us. Until then, what's one item on your bucket list? <laughs>